Hello and welcome to Cajun Presents Coppola Connection, brought to you by the Breadcrumbs Collective and hosted by me, Petros Pat Syllabus. This is episode 24 and it's a very special one because we're talking about The Outsiders, Francis Ford Coppola's 1983 adaptation of the S.E. Hinton novel of the same name. Another perfect guest for this one, somebody who's written not just one, but two books all about 1980s movies. And those books are Fast Times and Excellent Adventures and The Ultimate History of the 80s Teen Movie. That is, of course, James King, who would have sinned by the name of this episode. And uh, yeah, you will hopefully very much enjoy this chat. I had a lot of uh, fun uh, recording it. Uh, if you haven't seen The Outsiders, you can pick it up on Blu-ray and 4K at the moment. It's got an amazingly beautiful restoration. Uh, I kind of love when these Francis Ford Coppola gems in my eyes. I'm a big, 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 big apologist for 1980s Coppola. So yeah, be sure to check that out. Be sure to pick it up. I'm sure it must be being released digitally i know it got a few screenings in cinemas i know it was screened at the uh, london film festival as well with a q a with francis ford coppola himself before we go any further though if this is your first time listening to the podcast what we do here is we watch every single film in the collective coppola filmography to determine are they the greatest film family of all time we talk about the films in Lots of spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, make sure you go see it now. So with all of that out of the way, all that's left to do is to stay gold as we make some Coppola Connections. little disclaimer this episode there is some technical issues regarding sound james had to change his microphone halfway through so if the quality changes that is why but uh, still good episode you won't notice it literally it'll be two minutes of kind of audio changes and you'll be like you know what this conversation's so great i'm just going to enjoy it uh, despite the technical difficulties i've, I've tried my best to, to to make it sound just as good and it's the conversation's still still great, okay? Enjoy! This week, we head back to 1983 as Francis Ford Coppola transposes us back to the US in 1960s Oklahoma to meet a group of greasers who were born on the wrong side of the tracks. We're focusing, of course, on Francis's adaptation of Essie Hinton's novel, The Outsiders. To join me as we slick back our hair and sharpen our switchblades to dissect this film, is a man who is quoted on the cover of Nicolas Cage's Knowing, saying, awesome. Of course, it's journalist, presenter, writer, and podcaster, James King. James, are you staying gold? <laughs> I'm staying awesome. Uh, yeah, to, to quote. Um, that, <laughs> you know, with each year, as each year goes by, obviously the, the, the movie Knowing becomes more and more forgotten. Uh, and and crops up even in even fewer charity shops on DVD. <laughs> but there is always someone, and it's often you, uh, who will who will bring bring up that quote and say, "Really, James, you thought the film Knowing, starring Nicolas Cage, was awesome? 
to which I, I, I know I, I'm sure I've explained it to you before about the, the, the full review and blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, I, I dream of the day when actually it's completely been forgotten. Oh, I'm sorry, um, James, for bringing it up. Obviously, being on here, it will just get a little, <laughs> little sort of um, uptick in interest again. A little bump, yeah. Um, but, but one day, one day there will be no more DVDs of the film knowing in any charity shops anywhere. Mm-hmm. And finally, I can sleep at night. I recently picked it up on Blu-ray, and that was like it just, it just like really jumped out at me because I'd like definitely knew it was taken out of context i'm always suspicious when something is one word i'm sure it was like in context was some of these effects are pretty awesome and then it's like right let's just take awesome that's what we're going that's what we're running with the pr department are like we we need to we need to find we need we've got some lemons let's make some lemonade yeah now i should point out that i'm i I'm pretty sure that in a situation like that, I would have been asked. I don't remember being asked, but I'm not <laughs> going to point the finger at anybody because I could be to blame here. I, there may have been an email, however many years ago this was, saying, are you okay for us to use the word awesome on, on the front of the poster? And maybe I said yes. I don't honestly remember. Um, but I know that I was ridiculed oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> for quite Jim. a long time you know you know but i understand that because i don't, don't think the film is awesome so if you're ever in a charity shop and you see it for 50 pence and you think oh wow well it says awesome on the front maybe i'll give this a go don't don't be swayed by that just remember <laughs> it was it was a mistake um and uh you you shouldn't you shouldn't believe it perfect perfect well um so if, if people <laughs> if people aren't aware of you james who are you who is James Bond? <laughs> well, back in the awesome days, um, I, I was on Radio 1, which was when I, I wrote that review for the Radio 1 website. So that was where that came from. And I was on there for many years. Now I've, I've moved over to Radio 2 and do film coverage with them and other things as well, you know, some TV shows and, and write books. And, and we've spoken before, haven't we? We spoke about Keanu Reeves. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and... Uh, I, I, I guess um, because I wrote a book a couple of years ago about 80s teen movies, that would make sense why I'm here to speak about The Outsiders, which is one of the seminal um, American 80s teen movies. So that, that's been a particular interest as well. Um, so, yes, that, that, is, that, that is me. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, some, uh, look, I'll just get them out now. Some of the other embarrassing DVD quotes that you may see in charity shops. Uh, uh, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. I'm on the cover of that one um and uh good luck chuck starring jessica alba i'm on that one sorry so I, listen I'm, this wasn't meant i'm to just be holding like my a, hands up now you see getting them out this wasn't meant to be like a gotcha james this wasn't like a kind of, this isn't like some kind of uh uh big ruse to kind of get people in and go here's here's uh here's an embarrassing thing from your past i'm not gonna like it's like a confessional, maybe because we're talking coplers. I'm getting very sort of Italian Catholic about it, <laughs> but it's like a it's like a confessional. I'm just saying, I know I have sinned, Petros, <laughs> but you know, I, I'm admitting to it, and I'll go and you know grab my rosary and and ask for forgiveness. Perfect. Well, I like to always start these uh, conversations off by asking about your copla credentials and how you became aware of them, not just as a single member, even though there may be an entry point, but has this kind of spider's web of a of a dynasty that they are. I think the first time was reading the review of The Godfather Part 3 in Empire Magazine. 
um, when it was brought to my attention that Sofia Coppola was in it and had replaced Winona Ryder um, and was terrible. Um, and people, reviewers, were very blunt about that. They didn't really, <laughs> didn't really yeah. mince their words when it came to reviewing Sofia's performance in The Godfather Part 3. Um, and that's when I realised, okay, so this, I, obviously I'd heard of Coppola. It's not like I'd seen all of his films, but I knew who he was, Francis Ford Coppola. Um, and I thought, okay, so there's another one. So there is a family there. Uh, and at that point, although Sophia has said more recently she never wanted to be an actor, but at that point it looked as if you know she would be yeah. um, a, a, an actor to watch, perhaps for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> well, she like we'll talk about the fact that she's got a very small part in this as well. It's very much a, a family business. The Coppolas. It's like uh, every, like, and it's it's that weird thing, and it's something we get into on this podcast a lot. Is that that debate of whether it is like nepotism or just kind of like this is what I do come and be a part of it do you know what I mean that that very Italian thing of like hey, yeah. if we're gonna make wine let's make it as a family if we're gonna have like yeah gonna cook a meal let's cook as a family so like I'm yeah how do you how where do you fall down on that when it comes well to I think if 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 it's clear and this does happen with some families if it's clear that that one of the offspring for example is is doing very well but isn't actually very good yes. at what they do you would go well that's probably nepotism they've only got that far not through talent but because of who they or their parents know but the thing about a lot of the cobblers is that actually i think they're really good at what they do yeah um and maybe sophia got uh more of a break because of her surname and i know that nick cage obviously changed his name uh, mm. because he didn't want that association but maybe she got uh, the Virgin Suicides made because, you know, the people her dad knows and a lot of the people that he's worked with were people in, in the crew of that movie. So you could argue that. But at the same time, if it had been terrible, she probably would have never made another movie. And that, and that has happened uh, with, with certain directors whose, whose kids have gone into directing and you know they've just not been very good yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but but Sophia I think is, has made and continues to make some really interesting films and and now is utterly a filmmaker in her own right it's not it's not the daughter of Francis Ford Coppola yeah. um so nepotism I mean yeah but but I'm not a parent but I also think well if you were a parent and you could help your child in some way why wouldn't you do that exactly, exactly. um you know, that isn't that just caring for your kids? Yeah. Uh, and we're looking at it as if just because they're really powerful as a family, they shouldn't do that. But like, we'd all do that, right? We just it's help a, out family yeah. members. That's what you do. Definitely. I think they're very much like, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I recently made uh, a comparison online that there is some kind of thematic, not thematic links, but like there is some things that link uh, the Coppolas to the Roys from Succession, just down to like, <laughs> names of them the kind of um there's a daughter who has a son who benefits from the uh, who has a partner who benefits from the family like Sophia with Spike Jones obviously if it wasn't for Francis giving him the script for being John Malkovich like maybe his career wouldn't have been what it is like and you've got the wild card cousin in Nicolas Cage obviously there's cousin Greg in succession and stuff like that and like <laughs> I like to I, I like to think that the naming of uh, Roman Roy is a kind of Jesse Armstrong yeah. saying to us, uh, "Yeah, like the Coppolas are in there somewhere." I, I I must have looked at all of these kind of uh, 
behemoth kind of dynasty families to kind of draw yeah upon. and it's i mean brian cox is obviously a lot more uh celtic than than francis Ford copler but that i could certainly see a you know bearded kind of imposing statuesque figure um i've never met francis Ford copler uh, i think he's a genius but i would be hugely intimidated oh, yeah. he has that that air about him um that perhaps some of his contemporaries don't have. That's not to do down Spielberg, but Spielberg feels like a kind of nerdy mate you'd go to the cinema with. Mm-hmm. Whereas Coppola, you know, has much more of a grandiosity about him, doesn't he? Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, in in a in a um, Brian Cox style out of Succession. So I, I like that. I can, yeah, I, I see where you're going with that. Then the more I think about it, the more I think. It's not just that I can see it. I think that must be true. Yeah, I, my, yeah. My, <laughs> I think my... you've actually hit on the truth there. Yeah, I've, I, I have tweeted Jesse Armstrong. And, and it's, I think it's a perfect... I, I want to kind of do an episode on... Just because I really like Succession now, I really want to like mm. just, 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 just really weed out all of those kind of comparisons and I don't know. Yeah, and The Godfather, obviously, <laughs> that you know, that trilogy is, is a family saga, isn't it? It's about the backbiting and the backstabbing and, yes. and the, the politics within a family. So it would make sense that if you're going to do a TV uh miniseries about that <laughs> you would at least draw some things from the godfather oh of course you look at the title sequence it almost looks like a godfather-esque like yeah. imagery of like these kind of kids smoking yeah. cigars and all all kind of dapper and it looks like the kind of yeah the family estate from the, the, the yeah. corleones have so yeah um well you haven't met francis ford coppola but have you met any of the coppola's james <clears throat> uh yeah actually when i was thinking about this earlier that quite a few um so sophia a few times lovely big fan of her work she's you know really smart entertaining um so always good to meet her uh jason schwartzman when he was in the band phantom planet amazing california (laughs) california theme tune to the oc so uh yeah met him he was fun um obviously cage Mm. which is just you know uh, a joy when i first met him and he answered questions i th- i genuinely thought he was doing an elvis impersonation because he was so like oh thank you very much how are you doing and i thought well i know you love elvis we all know that so perhaps you're just doing something you know i'd interviewed <laughs> vin diesel and he he did it as michael kane once so i thought perhaps <laughs> this was just something that that nick cage was doing uh, then of course I realised that that is that is him. Mm-hmm. Um, he is very much not the the crazy Nick Cage that you know we know from a lot of films. He is very much the introverted Nick Cage. Uh, but that's fine. And um, the best time, and I, I I feel I may have mentioned this to you already, but I'll I'll say it anyway. The best time was when I was interviewing him for the film adaptation. This is a long time ago now. Uh, he was in London promoting it, and this was in January of, of whatever year it was. And the film publicist said to me before I went in, your interview is going to coincide with the Oscar nominations coming out. So do you <laughs> mind if someone interrupts the interview to tell him whether he's got a nomination or not? And I said, fine, it's, you know, it's, it's all right. It was like 1.30 on a Thursday or whatever. whatever. And uh, so I'm doing the interview and we're chatting away and I'm sort of conscious the whole time that at some point somebody come through the door Sure enough, about halfway through, uh, um, an assistant comes to the door. Nick, you got it. You got it. You got the nomination. (laughs) Nick Cage jumps out of his seat, 
he starts going, yeah, 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 like this. I'm getting this all recorded. I think this is amazing. <laughs> um, and we ran it. This was the Radio 1 days. We ran it on the news that night. You know, this is kind of Nick Cage as it happens, yeah, yeah. discovering that he's got an Oscar nomination, uh, which was great. Um, and that was the most animated I've seen him, actually, in an interview. You know, he, he was, it, it was actually quite heartening. You know, he'd already won an Oscar at that point, obviously was a massive star. Um, but was so happy to get another nomination. And maybe later, as a lot of the actors would have done, they become a bit more sober about it and, and a bit more modest about it. But I saw him right at the moment where he first <laughs> knew in private. I think he forgot that it was being recorded. <laughs> and he was overjoyed. He was really overjoyed. Um, so that's probably my favourite Coppola meeting. I'm trying to think. So Schwartzman, Sophia, Nick Cage. Um, prob- I think that's probably it. That's um, that's oh, Sp- well, Spike Jones as well, back when he was, you know, an honorary member. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I remember I, in- I went, to- I had to do a- an interview with Sophia once, an onstage thing when she was promoting Marie Antoinette, and it was about 6.30 in the evening in Leicester Square in London. And that week, Nick's uh, remake of The Wicker Man was coming out. Yes. And it wasn't screened to the press. So I couldn't, I, you know, I hadn't seen it in advance. I couldn't see it in a press screen. So I had to go and pay to see it, like the first screening. So I went to the Empire Square, watched The Wicker Man, and then walked next door to what to the View Leicester Square to go and meet Sophia Coppola and do an on stage with her. And she was like, oh, you know, how's your day been? And I said, well, actually, I, funnily enough, <laughs> I've just been watching your cousin. And I thought we would then strike up this amazing chat mm-hmm. about Nick, about how the fact he's remade The Wicker Man as a legendary horror film and discuss a bit like that. But really, I mean, lo- lovely uh, as she is, there was barely a flicker of interest <laughs> in the fact that I'd just seen her cousin in, in his remake of The Wicker Man. So, um, I, you know, on paper, I thought this is brilliant. It's yes. a great kind of uh, chat topic. But nah, I, I think she had better things to think about than, than Nick Cage remaking an Edward Woodward movie. I imagine for them, like, they're, they're just probably inundated with news of Cage being in a new film, right? Because he's like kind of... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you kind of, I don't know, close your eyes and it, there's like... The dead... news story would be that it's a week that Nick Cage isn't in a new movie. Exactly. That, yeah, that, yeah. That's what she would have talked about, not <laughs> yeah. the fact that he was in another one. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so what would have been your first Francis Ford Coppola film, James? What would have been the first one you'd seen? Um, I I think it was The Godfather. It was either The Godfather or Apocalypse Now. Now, Apocalypse Now, I watched in a history lesson because we were studying the Vietnam War. Wow. GCSE history. Uh, but, and this is sacrilege, it was the, the history teacher sort of fast-forwarded through it. Obviously, it's a long film, and, and history lessons weren't that long. <laughs> I think even a double history, you wouldn't have had enough time to watch it all. So he kind of fast-forwarded through some bits on the small screen TV. You're thinking, is this really how Francis Ford Coppola intended us to see this movie? <laughs> um, but I, it was either that or around the same time, so my teenage years, watching The Godfather. And I, in an equally... Um, uh, unacceptable way, really, which was it was screened, it was shown on ITV. Uh, so you got the adverts. This would have been panned and scanned because this was, you know, old school TV, so four by three. Um, uh, but having said all of that, I still loved it. And I think that was what I really noticed because I wasn't a film 
particularly filmy person at this point in my life, but I knew enough that The Godfather was a film I ought to see. Yeah. So I'd recorded it um, and didn't even have a particular interest in the mafia uh, at that <laughs> point or, or, you know, the actors or anything. It was just like, okay, I see it's on TV. I should watch it. But by the end of that, I wanted to see every other mafia film going. I wanted to see Al Pacino movies, you know, uh, Brando, James Kahn, all that. I was just like, I mean, it turned me. Yeah. So that to me, I thought, well, if you can, if you can get a 14 or 15 year old me interested in this via a crap TV advert breaks, uh, you know, watching it on VHS that I'd recorded. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty good going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you can see how good that movie is, despite all of those things getting in the way, that's the sign of a great film. Definitely. You're down your local high street buying a new, buying a suit, trying to really like get into the, get into the vibe of it. That's a, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I love that. I lo- what I love about the Godfather is it, it seems like a rite of passage for, I can only speak as a, as a kind of, uh, as, as a male, but like as a teenage boy, see, like it seems to be even, even like in I don't know, the early two thousands when I kind of became a teenager, it was this thing of like, got to see the godfather even though like none of us really understood like mm. do you mean at school no, no one really understood what the film was about and really like that's why i i i say my joke that i've never really seen it because like i just i watched it then haven't i haven't revisited it and now i'm doing this podcast and i need to hold out until i'm covering it but it's that thing of i don't know like yeah because it didn't i didn't absorb it it's almost like yeah it's Oh yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't call it that first time I watched it. I would. It, it's did I watch it? Well, I did, but is it? You know, it's it's not like watching it on the big screen, which I don't think I, I don't think I ever have actually. You know, mm-hmm. so there's still there there are still new experiences to be had for me, and it sounds like for you as well with The Godfather. I still have yet to watch it for the first time on a big screen, mm-hmm. which is an exciting prospect. Um, I've got it on DVD, but let's say i get it on blu-ray or hd or whatever and watch it you know it's a different mm-hmm. um format so there are still new things to experience with that but i just remember thinking so many times especially when you're young and you read about that you have to see this film often it can be a bit heavy going and you think listen i'm 14 mate you yeah, know yeah. i don't really need to watch this heavy going film yet maybe in 20 years time i'll appreciate it but not at this moment in my life mm-hmm. Whereas I watched The Godfather and it absolutely worked. And all the hype that I'd read about it, it lived up to that. Um, and this was in the 90s. So this, you know, I thought films from the 70s at that point were ancient. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what could a film from the 70s possibly say to me, a kid of the 90s? Yeah. But it totally delivered. Yeah. I, 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 I always used to think that. And now, like, as a 30-year-old, I'm kind of like, that is like my go-to decade do you know what I mean I kind of love the the scuzziness and the kind of I don't know the dour the existentialness of the 70s is just really like yeah. ticks my boxes but then but then I, yeah. I don't know I'm a, I'm a massive uh apologist 80s Coppola uh, so so which is what we'll, we'll get into um so yeah let's talk about the outsiders James The 
Outsiders. Pony Boy. Dallas. Johnny. Cherry. Soda Pop. Daryl. Two Bit. Steve. Bob. Essie Hinton's classic novel comes to the screen, capturing all the intensity, all the excitement, all the emotions of youth. The Outsiders, directed by Francis Coppola. When did you first see this film? Um, uh, it would have probably been in the noughties, I think. I remember I, I got it on VHS. Um, the, the, really, the death knell of VHS is Dying Days. Uh, but it was, it was an 80s teen movie that had always um, evaded me, really. I, it wasn't one I'd, I'd seen as a kid growing up, which was when I watched most of them. Um, I hadn't. The Outsiders. I'd even seen Rumblefish before I'd seen The Outsiders. Um, so I watched it then, loved it, <clears throat> and then sort of upgraded my formats of it. Um, and uh, then when I wrote a book about ATC movies, of course, it you know it took up quite a lot. It took up a whole chapter, I think, because I think it's significant in many ways mm-hmm. for that genre and and for that decade. In in a fairly obvious way, really. I think you only have to look at the the cast list um, and who they became, their careers, whether their careers were glittering or whether their careers sort of uh, faltered after a few years. Yeah. Um, that that's sort of a hardcore group of seven actors in that film. Well, we, eight, if you want to include Diane Lane, who I think is brilliant, but obviously not in the film that much. Um, they they were the guys, yeah, and it is, I think, the best. Um, gathering of those who would be known as the Brat Pack before St. Elmo's Fire, before the Breakfast Club. You know, this is the one where they came together, all of them for the first time, um, and and sort of set the tone. Even though this was a '60s movie and the Brat Pack is such an '80s phenomenon, they still had they they had this kind of '80s energy about them, a bratishness about them. You know, they were rebellious sexy i think in my book i described them almost like a boy band you know it was yeah. amazing if you had that poster it's kind of like right it's like looking at a poster of one direction or take that or whoever you know it's a boy band yeah I... just these these good looking young guys And if you're a, a girl or a young guy looking at them you're going to go okay well that's my favorite you know you'd have your own favorite who's yeah. is it rob Lowe? is it matt dylan is it uh tommy howell you know um so that that was a real moment in in eighties teen movie history, what? when they were delivered to us as right. These are your new pinups. These are the guys you're going to be following for the next few years. What I love about that poster that you um, mentioned is the fact that it's it it's a mistake. Like that, it's, it's it's a kind of like uh, a, a, they they were just having a laugh. Like I think yeah, Ralph Macchio had done something like dumb or yeah or something. And they, they, yeah, they kind of like caught a moment. I think that's like what this film kind of does as well. It kind of like it, it 
captures a moment not just of like the the 60s life but as you said like the 1980s as well like and it feels like a good time to talk about that the, the casting process of this film because i'm not sure like how much you you, you probably you, you probably know this as well but like i think it was fred ruse and francis ford coppola just got everyone in yeah. hollywood who was kind of in that 18 to 30 age bracket and went yeah hey come to this sound stage we're just gonna have tryouts today like and yeah. then yeah francis ford coppola's there going hey um scott bayo your pony boy in this one uh <laughs> do you know what i mean like yeah emilio yeah you're gonna be you're gonna be two bit or just mi- mix and matching and a lot of them have said yeah. like it was one of the most grueling experiences of their kind of acting careers kind of having francis ford coppola as they walked in playing opera music like <laughs> and then and then he's kind of yeah i think this is the first time they'd ever seen like like a 16 millimeter camera because he's kind of just filming everything and like and he's kind of i don't know the way he worked was was fascinating to all of them yeah it was it was it was a workshop really wasn't it yeah. where it's right okay kids let's see what you can do let's try this um improvising so that's a great recipe for creativity and a great recipe for um good performances and they looked up to him so much who wouldn't if you're mm-hmm. at that point you're 15 or 16 and you want to make it in the movies I mean, the, one of the key things i found when i was writing this book was how much those actors because of their age they all wanted to be working with coppola Scorsese, De Palma, that that those directors who had come up through the seventies. So all of a sudden they are. All of a sudden they get the chance to work with the guy who made The Godfather and Apocalypse Now, and you're sixteen, seventeen years old. Like this is what I've dreamed of. Yeah. Um, so they had so much respect for him. I think they were also aware that he'd had some financial problems, um, and his career wasn't what it once was. But that doesn't mean that he'd lost any of his skill or any of his genius. Uh, and that was definitely something that young male actors really looked up to. He was such a leader to them. Mm-hmm. And that's also, I believe, what Francis Ford Coppola liked about making the movie, is that he could become this kind of youth leader, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is probably very good if you're, for your frame of mind. If you've had really bad financial problems and just being bogged down with red tape over your other movies to sort of get back to basics and just get your hands dirty again. Group of young actors who are hungry to do this, no cynicism, just getting stuck in and making a low-budget movie really helped him out. Definitely, yeah, especially the fact what this is like $10 million budget and like Apocalypse Now would have been... God knows Whatever. how, yeah. yeah. And then yeah. even one from the heart, a film that should have been contained, small, just kind of ballooned out of control with like, yeah, let's rebuild the Las Vegas Strip in a, on a soundstage. Let's kind of like have all have multiple cameras working at once. Let's try and invent this new kind of live cinema where I can kind of edit as the film's being made and stuff like that. And it's it's quite frankly bizarre and this yeah this does feel like and i I always look at it as like this is a reset on copa's career it's a a new it's a it's a beginning of a new new era of his career right and and aligning himself with the hottest young stars of the time so Mm -hmm. he 
you know, it really made him a, uh, a someone who did, I mean, he didn't discover them, obviously, because most of them had worked before, but, but it puts him right at the heart of this new young brat pack. Mm-hmm. Uh, no longer the, the older middle-aged guy who directed a great movie from the previous decades. He's right at the forefront of 80s stuff. Now, as I'm sure you know, and your podcast will go on to explain, they didn't necessarily all go to plan after that. But, <laughs> um, but at the same time, it was a moment for him when suddenly he was hot again. Um, I, I did, you know, I, I, I spoke to an executive who greenlit The Outsiders, I think, but, and, he, and he said, look, yes, it was low budget for Francis Ford Coppola, uh, but at the same time, we were all shitting ourselves that it was going to go horribly wrong yeah. because he had form on that. And we were all concerned that he would burn down Tulsa. I think there was quite a bad fire actually on set because there's obviously a scene with a fire. Uh, but, you know, there were concerns that things would happen, things would go wrong, the budget would go crazy. Um, so it, I don't think it would even a, 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 a small scale film for him. I don't think it was hugely easy for Coppola to get the projects off the ground. But he did it and he proved himself and it made money and it was a hit film. And of course, that then allowed him to make Rumblefish um, in a much more experimental style. Yeah, definitely. As two films that very much play as like a, a perfect, well, yeah, they're like a perfect two piece, right? Like R- Rumblefish, I don't know. It's, oh, it's special, that film. I, I, I've, yeah. got, I've got a special... Uh, I've got a special place in my heart for The, the Outsiders. It's one of the only films I have a, a tattoo that references uh, a film. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I, get, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's autumn now, so you're fairly well-clothed. Yeah. But is it, is it available for me to see at this point? Or uh, not? It's, got, it's, it's, it's on my legs, so it's quite hard. But I've got, oh. I've got, I've got Stay Gold uh, written across like, the fronts of my like, ankles. So, like, if I'm okay. wearing, if I'm wearing like flip flops, or so you've got stay on one ankle and gold on the other. Yeah, but on the front. So, like, obviously, like that's going to hurt as well, isn't it? Oh yeah, it, it did. <laughs> but that's that's the passion for the, for Coppola. Yeah, right? and and I got this. This kind of tells uh, the listeners about my kind of uh, affinity for this film. I, I got that tattoo when I was like 19 years old because this, wow. this this is a film that really I, I don't, there's something about it, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but really spoke to me as to like the the messaging and that kind of idea of it's a film that is just wall to wall pretty much apart from diane lane and a, a few other female characters who don't really get a lot of screen time it's it's just boys trying to make their way in the world right and kind of figure it all out yeah yeah it, it really the, the the main thing i remember feeling um when i first saw it was just how um just how miserable their lives were that's not to say they were miserable because they just sort of did what they could to to yeah. to stay to stay gold to stay happy but they had tough lives these characters they really had nothing they were broke they were from broken homes um didn't always have families didn't have any money they they were really rough times for these characters and I think that really opened my eyes to just how, even though it wasn't set in the UK and it was set in the 60s, it certainly wasn't like contemporary Britain. But it did really open my eyes to um, poverty. Yeah. Because they, and it's not what the point of the film is about. It's not necessarily at the forefront of the movie. 
but you can see it there in terms of how they live, where they live, the kind of jobs that a couple of them have. Um, they are hard up and they live in a tough area and yeah. their lives are really tough. And some of these characters are 15, 16 years old and they have to behave as if they're adults because there aren't adults in their life <laughs> to do that. Um, so they, they, there's a lot of responsibility on their shoulders. Um, and certainly that uh, Ralph Macchio and, and C. Thomas Howell look so young in it. Oh. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's because young. they were yeah, young, yeah, yeah. But, but they are insanely young to, to have that kind of pressure put on them and to have to live in that way. Um, and the older I get watching it, you just think these are children. I feel sorry for them. They're, yeah. they're kids yeah, and yeah. they have to deal with that. Um, you could watch it if you're a teenager and think, well, they're kind of cool teens mm -hmm. and, you know, hey, we just get on with stuff. But as an adult, you just think, wow, poor kids having to deal with all that crap. Yeah, you can definitely see why this would have appealed to someone like uh, Francis Ford Coppola. Kind of is at the, at the heart of all of his films, really, is a sense of family. And I know like that's a big thing that he, personally he is like all about. Obviously, we've discussed yeah. the... The, that's why this podcast exists <laughs> exactly but yeah um um one thing i yeah i always uh put upon my guests i guess is to give us a synopsis of the film we're talking about so what is wow. the outsiders about james well the outsiders is about a group of friends and family members who are known as greasers um so rock and rollers really from that era with the greased hair and the leather jackets and 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 Generally, greasers were from lower class families. Mm -hmm. And they're a tight knit group because they don't necessarily have the parents to help them out. Um, certainly, the main three characters, their family, the Curtis family, the parents are both dead. So the older brother has to look after them. So it's about this group of greasers in, uh, it's in Oklahoma, isn't it? Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, and their rivalry with uh, a group who are known as the Socias. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, it's, so, it's sort of SOC, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Hold on. Sorry, I'm just losing my battery power. Hopefully, I'll be all right. Okay, we'll keep going. Uh, yeah, they're rivals with a gang called the Socias, S O C S, who are the preppies, really, the, the more middle class ones in their chinos and their letterman jackets and that kind of thing. Um, and so there's a rivalry going on between them. But the individual characters, the individual greasers, have their own stories. Um, one of them, for example, Dallas, uh, played by Matt Dillon, has just come out of a, a kind of juvie, you know, a juvenile um, jail, I suppose. And he has his own issues. Um, and then uh, Soda Pop and Pony Boy and, and um, Dar it's Daryl, isn't it? It's, yeah. uh, Patrick Swayze. Is, um, oh. Patrick Swayze. They're the three Curtis family members. They've got their own issues. They don't all get on with each other. There are others in there. You know, Tom Cruise plays a character who's a mechanic. Um, you've got Emilio Estevez in there, who's just sort of zips in and out of scenes. He's like hyperactive in it. Uh, brilliantly so. But, um, you know, just a maniac, really. Just <laughs> <laughs> this kind of maniacal side character. I suppose we've all got them in our like gangs of friends, the one who's just a complete lunatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's him, me sort of dropping in and out. Um, so that's that's the setup. That's that's the the gang and the rivalry is at the heart of it. But there are deaths in there, um, there are tragedies in there that 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 
become uh, an important part for Ponyboy, who is the lead character uh, in his life. And, and it's framed by him writing his story as, a, as an assignment, really, for school, telling the story of, of you know, where he, how he got to where he is and what went wrong. Um, so it, what it, I always see it as a tragedy. I think it's a really sad film, a beautiful film, but a sad film. So going back to that poster where they are all laughing because it's just a, <laughs> a moment in the, in, the, in the photography studio where they were just fucking about, it's not necessarily in tone with the film yeah. uh, because the film is, is sad. It's, it's very moody and, and tragic. I, I love the, there's a, the, the new artwork that's been designed by Tony Stella for the like 4K like, uh, remaster of the film. I think perfectly captures the tone of the film because it's kind of like one of those old style paintings where it's got the that golden yeah. hour sun and like everyone looking a bit like it's kind of got Ralph Macchio looking a like that I don't know he's got this just <clears throat> concern on his face from like moment one of the film and you you can't help but feel sorry for the character of Johnny right it's just like established early yeah. doors that things aren't yeah. good at home he's sleeping on a yeah vacant lot. Uh, oh yeah there's a moment when he's about to go back to his home and we'd never go into his house but we just see from outside and you can hear his family arguing in there and he doesn't go in he says oh, i'm sick of this i'm not going to go home it's awful because he looks so fragile uh, ralph macchio has always looked youthful yeah um, <laughs> he's, he's always been older than you actually realize even when you watch him in stuff now he still looks like about 30 even though he's in his 50s um so he's always looked youthful, but that I think that's really um, really useful in in his portrayal as Johnny because you do feel sorry for him because he does seem like such a a small helpless child who gets himself into into this crazy situation, and then later on in the film when he injures himself, you see him laid out on this hospital bed. Um, it's awful. It's it's just awful to watch. Uh, probably partly because I guess medical science back then was different. So it looks much more sort of imposing the situation yeah. <laughs> that he's in because he's hurt his back. So he has to be laid out flat. And it's this awful sort of old fashioned hospital bed where you can't move, uh, which you probably wouldn't, you know, you probably wouldn't do that now, but back then you did. Uh, but he just looks like this little fragile you know, he looks about 11 or something. I, I always, uh, this little fragile kid. I always worry. Uh, yeah, I always think about that shot of him, like, laying on his front. Is it, like, was that how it was done? Or was that so they could do that great split diopter shot? Yeah, Of, 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 of him and, uh, yeah, C. Thomas Howe, kind of like. And this film is littered with fantastic split diopter. I kind of, all the way through, I was like, has this cinematographer who is uh Stephen Burham like has he worked with Brian De like was he fresh off of like De Palma stuff and then amazingly it it, it transpires that he he actually went on to kind of become like the year after in Body Double was like then De Palma's guy like so like yeah uh yeah um, Carlito's way even Nicolas Cage starring Snake Eyes is like Steve Steve Burham is there behind the camera and kind of coming up with these amazing shots that I, I can only imagine this is like the the nexus point of it i know that like the split diopter is something that people uh see synonymous with de palma but it's it's good to see that de palma probably watched this and went who's that guy i'm getting him to do my next movie <laughs> <laughs> um 
So going back to the kind of um, beginnings of this film, I find it really interesting that it was a like a school kind of put a petition together to get Francis Ford Coppola to make it, right? Yeah. Oh, I've now switched microphones, by the way. In, I mean, C- Coppola would be outraged at this sort of <laughs> difference in sound quality, wouldn't he? If you're a perfectionist like him, he would go, well, this bit sounds completely different. I'm going to start the whole thing all over again at a cost of $50 million. Uh, <laughs> but we're not going to do that. So you just have to put up with a slightly different microphone. Um, yes. Uh, obviously, the Jesse Hinton books are huge parts of certainly American teenage life. I mean, Hinton herself was writing them, I think, which is pretty much a teenager. Um, and uh, I'm not sure if they've entirely crossed over to the UK in quite the same way. They're not so much the book you have to read when you're 12 or 13 years old in, in the way that they are in the States. But they're hugely popular, really popular as library books, as school library books, as, as reading when you were in high school. And so, yeah, it, it, that's where the um, the letter came from, from a high school that ended up, I think, with one of Coppola's uh, partners, one of his production partners, it just ended up on a pile in his office somewhere, I think in New York. This letter from a high school saying, please, can you, we want you to make a movie of The Outsiders because we think you'd be the right person for it. And that's where the idea began and he read the book and and and, and got the rights and, and that's, how the process began and, and they get a credit at the end of the film they get, which is you know lovely yeah. uh, to see that you know, he's, he's happy to acknowledge that film wouldn't even exist if it hadn't been for this um, persistent group of kids and their teacher getting in touch with him. But it's, a, it's like, a, yeah, it's a fairy tale really that, that, that somewhere a, uh, a teacher said to a class, let's write a letter to that nice Mr. Coppola <laughs> asking him to make a film of our favorite book. And lo and behold, that's, that's what happened, and, and it kind of then transpires to the um, the complete novel cut of the film and the way that came yeah. about. With uh, I'm going to assume it was Gia Coppola who had to uh, watch the film because it says his granddaughter, and I'm kind of just trying to like do the math on on all of this, and I'm thinking she was born like 1989. Like I think the complete novel came out in like the. 2006 early 2000s yeah so like it feels like it would have been when she was maybe 12 13 14 that francis ford coppola was almost embarrassed with the fact that they've they'd read the book and now had to watch the film and i know at the time he kind of presented this longer cut that was the entire novel and um the kind of studio had said warners at the time like as warners do like with a lot of things, uh, <laughs> um, they 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 were like, no, we we need it shorter. We need to cut yeah. off. I think it's like twenty two minute difference or something like that. But he, yeah, he put together like an assembly cut basically for for Gia Coppola's class to be like, this is this is the complete novel. And I know that like a lot of people throughout the years kind of lambasted him or like kind of said to him like, hey, where's this scene? Where's th- where's this yeah. scene from the book? And like. It was almost like an albatross around his neck. And I know that Francis Ford Coppola is one to kind of always delve back into his previous work, whether it's like the yeah. multiple cuts of uh, Apocalypse Now or I think uh, Godfather 3, like even last year, kind of got a zhuzhing up to make it make more sense and uh, not be the kind of, I don't know, 
the, the laughing stock that it very much was. Um, yeah, I just find that that whole thing quite beautiful that it, it comes comes back down to family. Yeah, well, that that certainly is is a sweet uh, story. Um, <laughs> I I'll be honest, I haven't seen the complete novel version. <laughs> um, I have sort of mixed feelings about it uh, because. As someone, I, I mean, I have read the book, but it's not, it's not a major thing in my life. I know the film that came out originally in 1983. That's the version I've seen a few times, and that's the version I love. And I don't look at it and think, this is so bad, they need to change it. Uh-huh. Or, or even if there are things in it that aren't all brilliant, I don't, I'm not passionate about them enough to think they should be changed. Um, I, for every Blade Runner director's cut, which is better than the original version <laughs> that came out of the cinema, um, there's also George Lucas redoing, you know, A New Hope when he re-released it in the nineties with some added stuff. And you just think there's not really any point in this. Yeah. Um, and, and I think The Outsiders is good enough, a great film, in fact, that it doesn't really need to be tweaked that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and okay. It's not apparently exactly the same as the book, but then it's a film, so it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be, yeah, yeah, of course. It doesn't have to be, and bits will get cut out. That's life. That's just what happens in (laughs) book adaptations. Uh, But it is interesting, though, that a two-hour cut or two hours, five minutes, whatever it was, was deemed too long, whereas now... I see so many films that are two hours plus. That feels fairly normal. Um, and you wonder if... I know, admittedly, it's it's a teen drama. It's not a Marvel blockbuster. But you wonder if now a two-hour version of this would be totally accepted by the film company. Well, yeah. I and mean, certainly not wanting to cut it down to 90 minutes. 90 minutes is a really rare running time now for anything that comes out of the cinema. Admittedly, there's a lot of straight DVD stuff, normally starring Nicolas Cage, <laughs> but, but, but you know, has that kind of 88-minute running time. But, but certainly cinema releases now, they're much longer. Um, so, uh, but, but I'm very happy with the 90-minute version, and the things that I think aren't entirely great about the film aren't things that you could change with a new cut. It's, it's little performances, things like that. I mean, that's not something you can really do much about now. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about the things that you enjoy about this film. So, like, are there, are there scenes yeah. that kind of stick out to you that really, like, I don't know, like, when you think of the outside, you're just like, that, that is the, that is the moment, that is the scene that speaks to me. Well, I love it from the start. I love the Stevie Wonder theme song. Um, a little incongruous. I mean, Stevie was about in the sixties as little Stevie Wonder, but it's not. I don't think it's. He was chosen because of that. Um, uh, you know, it's not like choosing a, a rock and roller from that era to do the theme tune, which would seemingly make more sense because the, there's a lot of rock and roll in the movie. Um, so it's a little incongruous, I suppose, apart from the fact that Stevie Wonder is a legend and is brilliant. So that's why you'd want him to do your theme tune. Um, but I love the theme tune. And if it doesn't entirely fit in with, with the, the other music in in the in the movie because the theme tune is a ballad a slow soulful ballad it's not elvis um it's still beautiful and it's really um emotional that song 
uh, and tap taps into the, the you know the message the message of stay gold stay golden. Um, so I love it from that moment on. Uh, in terms of a, a particular scene, I'd probably go for the rumble scene, the big fight scene, which is just brilliant. And the stories of them shooting that are, are brilliant. They they went for it. <laughs> Patrick Swayze really went for it. Patrick Swayze was an athlete. Yeah. Um, he w- always wanted to show off his physical prowess. Um, and he certainly did in that scene. And, and, and there, I, I can't remember who it was, whether it was Rob Lowe or, or I spoke to, to um, Darren Dalton when I was writing my book. He plays Randy in it. And, you know, he just said it was like a war zone. It was like, and it's like that in the movie, the way they all line up. It's like something out of Gladiator or something, isn't it? You know, a face-off, uh, a Nick Cage film. Um, but, um, you know, they all line up and it then becomes this battle, like an old war movie. And it's brilliant. And you've got, it's raining to add to the drama. There's also a fire going on as well in the background. It's so dramatic, but you can really see, and I think one, this is one of the great things about the movie, the, the energy of the characters. And when you are a 14, 15, 16-year-old boy, you have all that, that pent-up energy and aggression. Um, and they're not able necessarily to take it out of school or on the playing field or anything like that. So they do it in fights. Um, and Estevez is so good at that. Tom Cruise is so good at that. They're so, just like these little muscular bundles of, <laughs> of aggression. Um, and in that fight scene, everybody really goes for it. Yeah. Well, well, back to your point about the theme song. What I what I kind of love about that song is how it it like brings you into this world because it almost feels like a kind of fairy tale almost of, yeah. of this kind of because yeah, what it would have been twenty years removed from the time it's set already. So it kind of has this like I don't know. Yeah, it it almost acts as you know like that that sound you get in shows when it's like a flashback like. Ooh. Yeah. It has that and it kind of like lulls you into this to this world that yeah. they've created and it's it's always fascinating to me that Francis Ford Coppola didn't write the screenplay for this one I think it's a, a career first at this point for him not writing it because it yeah it, it feels yeah personal. I mean yes, Su- Susie Hinton and has talked about collaborating with him on the screenplay now they don't get the screenplay credit but I'm sure it's, it's you know, never quite as simple as the person who gets the credit is the only person who works on the screenplay. Um, and I suspect that's that's the case here as well. Um, but yeah, that fairy tale element is is something I remember really striking me when I first saw it, that it does have a 1960s juvenile delinquent movie feel about it, um, like a rebel without a cause or that that was from the 50s but you know a, a sort of james dean uh rebel old school movie it certainly has that feel but then that 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 fairy tale element to it where things are just a little bit more beautiful than they are in the, in the real world yes. a little bit more golden in fact than they are in the real world a little bit more tender than they are in the real world um that element to it really struck me because i that i i don't think a teen film had really done that before or particularly has since uh, maybe Sophia Coppola has done it in The Virgin Suicides or something it has a sort of similarly hazy feel about it but um, a lot of teen movies from the 80s were very contemporary uh, gritty isn't really the right word but contemporary just normal mm-hmm. teenage life in 80s America 
um and they didn't have a magic about them particularly you know you watch the breakfast club and it's brilliant but it's certainly not magical yeah, or yeah. fairy tale like um this has that magic about it that just makes it slightly more melodramatic moves it slightly further away from realism uh i, I don't necessarily think coppola had any interest in, in realism no. and when you watch um Rumblefish, he certainly didn't. He wanted to be <laughs> experimental. He wanted things to be a little unusual and a little odd and a little off kilter. Well, there's the, the unusual aspects of the outsiders. <clears throat> I really love like there's there's that moment when like Johnny and Ponyboy have that confrontation with the socias where Johnny like eventually stabs uh, one of them in the fountain. But we get this kind of effect that it's like this kind of blood like kind of comes across the screens obviously like a kind of must have been like a layer effect of the time there's that and there's like there's a f when when the when the church is on fire and there's like a bur it's, it's not real flames like you just get this burst of flames like uh clearly fake in front of the screen and it's something about those right really like say to me like this is this is a movie this is a kind of this is a tale this isn't like, yeah. Um, yeah, we're not, we're not, we're not trying to go. I don't know for this element of realism to, and I, th I think it really like, it sells the movie to me. There's something about that. It's those kind of touches that, that really make me invested in 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 what's going yeah. on and kind of I don't know the the weird Dutch angles that are used in the film and stuff like that and the just the way it's shot. Like I've never seen a sunset or sunrise like the one when uh johnny and pony boy are kind of discussing and you kind of get that uh is it the robert frost like poem that yeah. pony boy reads out like i don't yeah that's something what you're getting like a terence malick movie like <laughs> yeah yeah but the only thing that that it's it reminds me of <clears throat> and and this definitely would have been up coppola street i'm sure as a as a renowned cinephile is Rebel Without a Cause than the um, James Dean movie. Uh, Nick Ray directed it in the 50s. And, and that had, it's, it's not the same film, but it has a melodrama about it. It has an artistry about it and a sensitivity as well. Um, even though it's you know, a guy, a cool guy at high school, it's, it's very sensitive. It's very um, fragile, really, his performance. So I think there are definite nods to that. And in terms of what followed, it also reminds me a little bit because everything leads back to Nicolas Cage. We all know that. Um, some of the effects remind me a little bit of Wild at Heart, the David Lynch movie, yeah. which is so, I mean, it, that's a bonkers film and it's a completely over-the-top film. But there are over-the-top moments in The Outsiders where, like you said, it's deliberately fake. Mm -hmm. it's, it's acknowledging that this is cinema. Coppola yeah. is a champion of cinema and filmmaking. Of course, he's going to acknowledge that what he's making is a fantasy it's a, it's a story um and i think there are moments in both of those films often involving fire actually i think i think it's uh, yeah uh, there's fire scenes in both of those movies but which say yeah this is heightened we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna really amp this up to remind everybody that no other medium can do this so so, so you mentioned nicholas cage there is obviously a through thread on this podcast and a a constant in my life but um I, I i love the fact that even at this point this could have been his first acting role uh he as he auditioned for the role of either darry or dallas and francis ford coppola said to him 
why don't you try out for the role of two bit Nick, which he didn't particularly like uh, 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 which uh, is the Estevez character yeah. isn't it yeah 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 which yeah. like I imagine like from reading about it like he wasn't too keen on that because of all the research he had done and kind of I'm I'm saying this. He stormed off basically, being like, "No." Frog, well, he's please. in it though, isn't he? There's a, he's in the background in one scene. Yes, he is uh, in the fight scene. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But and then obviously <coughs> he got his time to shine in uh, Rumblefish just the year after. Yeah, <coughs> but the um the 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 stories about him in that era and uh, are fascinating, and just that what he felt about his surname and how um, other people were. Um, how other people, well, he claims anyway, were Mickey taking because of his surname and felt that it was all nepotism, blah, blah, blah. Maybe, maybe that would make sense. We weren't around at that point. But I suppose if your surname was Coppola in 1980, just a few years after Francis Ford Coppola had made three of the greatest films of all time, <laughs> four of the greatest films of all time, um, you know, maybe that is going to be a bit more of a stigma, a bit more of an albatross around the neck, as you said. Uh, but yeah, he was very uh, worried about his perception, how people saw him um, because of that name, hence the name change, what kind of roles he would get, whether he should be in a movie that his uncle directed, because surely that would just only exacerbate all the criticism. Um, so yeah, he, he was certainly, I think, quite troubled around that time, exactly where his career was going to go. and and. Um, how people were going to perceive him. Definitely. Well, um, one of the things I really wanted to like talk about with this is like, what do you, what do, what do you perceive the the themes for this film? Like, what is the messaging you take away from the Outsiders, James? Well, stay gold is obviously the famous line and and the message which we are. It's discussed at the end of the film. What do you think he meant when he said stay gold? Um, and obviously then they're referring to the sun and the sunset and the beauty of that and the innocence of that. And the, it's, I, I guess staying, but there's so much in it about how fighting is pointless and how these kind of beefs um, between the gangs ultimately only end up in tragedy. It's all pointless. Uh, so there's definitely a, a, a theme in there about staying innocent or at least staying, um, I think it's sort of positively naive. In other words, in other words, celebrating um, your your sort of optimism and childhood optimism that you have, rather than being all cynical, rather than just going, "Oh, we all hate each other, and it's always going to be like that, and things are never going to change." Actually, approach it with more of an optimistic, uh, childlike attitude, um, and I guess that's what staying gold. That's how I interpret it, anyway. Um, and because they are ultimately children, They're, like I said earlier, they are children, but with adult responsibilities. Um, and there's something in there about relishing your childhood rather than trying to grow up too quickly. There's definitely an element of it as well that talks about um, kind of individuality, just kind of like stay true to yourself. I think there's that moment with um, soda pop, kind of like when, like. Um, Daryl, like they kind of have like a, a confrontation near the end, like the the three brothers, yeah. and like Soda Pops. Like, yeah, yeah. I've I've had enough of this. Like I'm always in the middle. Yeah. You two are just kind of at each other, and it's like I think he says, like Pony Boy's just not wired up like that. 
Like that's not who yeah. he is. He's he's a bit more sensitive. And like I think that's like really like I don't know, beautiful message. For a film that came out in like nineteen eighty three, it's kind of like dispelling this thing of toxic masculinity and this like if you've got this creative side to you yeah. or you've got this um sensitivity to embrace it and like run with it. And I can imagine yeah. that being like a, a, a big thing that Francis Ford Coppola would have like really clung on to this film yeah i know like well i think that was that was you know essie hinton's yeah intentionally she's a young woman writing about teenage boys teenage boys who i who i think you know she'd grown up with she knew well the gangs of of where she grew up and how they intimidated her and so she wrote stories where they were they were three dimensional characters who had other sides who learned lessons and where the lessons were often don't be such a dick <laughs> you yeah. know don't be such a bloke about things embrace your sensitive side embrace your feminine side um, and uh, yeah we see even we see um, we see Ponyboy right at the beginning where you're talking about books and movies and his brother goes oh you with your books and your movies you know um, he doesn't understand that uh, but that's and it's so lovely to see that kind of sensitive character but still a greaser but yeah. still someone who gets involved in fights who gets involved in crime who um is a is tough ultimately yeah he's not as tough as patrick swayze or tom cruise not like built but you know he's still from a from the wrong side of the tracks he's still a tough guy but has a side that wants to read gone with the wind um, and I love that that conflict between that, that he's clearly a writer yeah. and a sensitive literary person, but doesn't necessarily have the outlets for that. And 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 they kind of the film shows you like the avenues he could take with the the Matt Dillon role, Dallas, and like kind of like how yeah. his story ultimately ends up with him him being shot down by the police and like yeah. kind of if you live this life it can like get the worst of you. But I think yeah. what the film does really well is it doesn't like ram that down your throat. It's, it's almost quite, it feels quite throwaway in the film. It's not like, because the film goes on after that. Do you know what I mean? It's not like the kind yeah. of roll credits after that. So it doesn't feel like a kind of a message movie in that regard. Do you no. know what I mean? Like the, it's, but people don't, people, the characters don't stand around saying things like that. If you don't do this, then you'll end up just like Dallas. You know, it's not, it's not explained. Uh, we can get that because we can read that into the film, but it's certainly not rammed down your throat, like you said. Um, Matt Dillon is great in it, isn't he? Oh. I do. My my problem when you when you talked about favorite things in the movie and <laughs> and recutting it and new versions, like I, you know, I said the things I I have a problem with is it's more some of the performances, which no recut of the movie could really do much, anything with. I don't think. And in a way, it's understandable. A lot of these actors were very young and it was some of their first work. So mm. they're not going to be fully formed. But part of the problem, I think, is that Matt Dillon is so good. I think he shows some of the other ones up. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, and Matt Dillon w- was kind of the star of the film at that point in terms, of, in terms of public profile. He was better known than a lot of the others. Uh, and, and maybe more experienced and certainly arrived in that film with more hype. He was so hyped by the media and by the industry as the new James Dean, the new John Travolta, the new thing. Um, but I can see why. Yeah. Uh, I, when I, when I was looking into all this stuff, you know, a few years ago for the book and rewatched 
or watch for the first time a lot of old Matt Dillon films, really early roles that he was doing, late 70s, early 80s. I thought he, I could completely see what all the fuss was about. He was amazing at such a young age. And it definitely reminded me of Travolta, who was a little bit older when he did Saturday Night Fever in Greece, but there was still a swagger there, a confidence there uh, that Matt Dillon totally has. And you see it in The Outsiders. And that's part of his character. Not all the other characters are as, are as confident as him in the story, but also I just think he makes it look easy. Uh, Whereas uh, Thomas Howell, is is fine, but you can see he's making the effort. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas whereas uh, Dylan just he just saunters through. Rob Lowe he is great, but you, he's trying really hard mm-hmm. at this. I don't actually think Rob Lowe is better at comedy than drama. Um, and Rob Lowe has said, you know, in his autobiography, I think he sort of said we were just all in awe of Matt Dylan, and of course he just made it look easy, uh, and he does. And it's it's weird, but Matt Dylan isn't a bigger star. Mm-hmm. than he is yeah. people who are interested in the movies we were interested in know him and he's still working but he's now in his late 50s and i suppose part of it is that he hasn't particularly changed his look he's still <laughs> the cool dude you know now he's late 50s but he's still the guy with the slick back hair and the cool dude the bit rebel bit bohemian um and maybe he should be sort of playing you know dad roles now or, yeah. or sort of slightly more comfortable roles maybe he'd get more work that way but I love him because of that. I love him that he's still the same guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's still really Dallas just 40 later. Well, he, he always had an unfair advantage on these guys, right? Because he had already starred in Tex, uh, another Eddie yeah. Hinton uh, adaptation. So yeah. kind of like always, always had a leg up of, he, he must have like, I'd imagine he would have read read the books of Eddie Hinton to kind of like get, get, get in role for that. So like, knew that world and then like yeah his and it shows how good his performance is i know he says like in a in a kind of later interview that he was bummed out when Francis ford coppola said no you go home like we're done with you and he kind of rang his agent and said oh that's it i haven't got the role and it wasn't that at all it's francis ford coppola was like this guy is so good he's in the movie like i don't need to see any more like yeah yeah get this guy yeah. in. and then obviously rolls right into rumblefish and again like really plays into the strengths and the kind of uh things he had built up with dallas and this to kind of make that yeah. performance absolutely outstanding yeah those two yeah. films together is like the kind of Matt dylan like chef's kiss <laughs> <laughs> yeah what well, you're not saying you me and dupree should be in there as well uh i have never i've never seen it so i can't pass judgment oh okay but, uh... Uh, okay well i i have seen it and i will pass judgment <laughs> <laughs> um, so as we start to wrap things up james what what do you think like yeah. the legacy of this movie is like obviously it's it's, it's not you we've talked about like 80s teen films yeah to me it feels like it's not as talked about as much as the kind of no. the pantheon of others. Why do you think that is? Well, I think the the style that we've mentioned is not to everybody's taste because it has a slight artifice to it. Um, and um, it perhaps feels a little slow in parts now. Um, that is probably actually something that, that, that Coppola tweaked a little bit when he was doing the, the alternate version. Um, so I can, in a way I can see why as a, as a, as a story and the way that it plays out, it might feel a little dated to some and it might not feel as 
fun to watch as Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Very few things are. Um, <laughs> but I think the legacy is not so much about the 90-minute film and, and what goes on in it. The legacy is just what it represents, that coming together of this talent, putting them all on screen together. The poster, you know, just seeing them all in a still, all together as mates. Mm. Um, that's the legacy for me. That's That began uh, a real change in Hollywood and a, a, a huge shift of, of leading men actually um and they all got leading roles off the back of this and they all had their well, franchises in certain cases you know more than one karate kid film um <laughs> tommy howell perhaps you know soul man wasn't the movie that uh rain man was <laughs> um, you know they uh some did better than others but they all went on to leading roles um and uh that that is began with the success of the outsiders yeah i I definitely think, like, that depending on how you look at Tom Cruise's career, you can either thank or, like, kind of blame Francis Ford Coppola. Like, because uh, I guess <laughs> thank the, him. You got to thank him. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, 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 like, I've been thinking about Tom Cruise a bit lately, and it's I, I love that. Like, uh, you got front like these old the, the the movie brats kind of gave him like the first lease of life with Francis Ford Coppola casting him in this, and then like Brian De Palma of all people has kind of like. Yeah, given him his bread and butter for however long he's going to make Mission Impossible movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's true. Um, I, I did an interview with the stunt director of Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible, recently because we were celebrating its 25th anniversary, the first Mission Impossible movie. And I think he said something like, "Oh, I met Brian De Palma once." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he said about three words to me. Like, well, he's the director. You're like the the stunt coordinator, but. I don't think uh, communication, he's obviously an amazing filmmaker, but communication um, isn't necessarily his strong point. But he did, like you said, make that first Mission Impossible movie and, and we're still reaping the benefits. Tom, Tom Cruise was desperate to be in this film. There's stories about him badgering Coppola because he knew he was mates with Estevez and he knew that Emilio Estevez was getting involved. Um, and of course, Estevez knew Coppola anyway through yeah. his dad, through Martin Sheen. Um, and Tom Cruise wanted a part of it, and you know he he made sure, in true Tom Cruise style, he made sure that yeah. people noticed him. Yeah, there's there's reports that like he he's always like even at this early stage of his career, he's always serious. There's like footage from the auditions, yeah. and he's like, I didn't like that one. Can I go again? And I, I think that like, is great, like to see that tenacity and like to kind of yeah. be that sure of yourself at that young age is. There's obviously like I don't know, but yeah, this film feels like lightning in a bottle of kind of getting all these talent. Like it's, it's somewhat forgotten to like the a, a mainstream audience somewhat, but mm -hmm. like you can almost look at this as like a a nexus point for a lot of people's careers. Like getting that yeah Francis Ford Coppola stamp of approval would have definitely been like casting agents would have been like, oh, I'm gonna have a look at that guy. Do you know what I mean? Like kind of yeah, they would yeah. Like, like all, all these people yeah do we get roadhouse without the outside <laughs> possibly not that's what, that's what and although doing. although you know coppola had had troubles and well-known troubles in the intervening years between apocalypse now and this it was really it was only five years mm -hmm. and even the godfather films were what 10 years before yeah. 12 years before and and if you think about it, that's not that long. No. 
um, <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. So, so to have got a Coppola movie, if you are Emilio Estevez or you are Thomas Howell, that was still a big deal because it was only 10 or so years ago before that, that he was the absolute king of Hollywood and, and winning Oscars. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, the, yeah, you know, the, there was a lot of credibility involved in it. Despite the financial troubles, there was a lot of credibility. Yeah, well, it's something me and Boyd Hilton talked about. Is that one from the heart is a like feels like that that tragedy of that film kind of flopping and the, the closing of uh, American Zoetrope Studios was like the Francis Ford Coppola almost never recovered from that in some, in, in some way. But mm. like he definitely had some good stabs at it. Made like for my money some some still like fantastic films and is like the outside is very much and his kind of mission statement is was to make an epic for teenagers and like I yeah think, i think like yeah the, despite being somewhat lost to the sands of time it definitely does that like if you if i don't know if you're curious about watching it, like or i don't know it feel, yeah it feels like something like i don't know i'll definitely i know I, i've got a young son so i know like once once he hits a certain like 12 years old and kind of be like hey sit down w- watch watch this film it might be ancient by the time that comes but like it will definitely have messages that resonant yeah st- i think still oh yeah today. yeah the messages are there if you want a message movie a movie about adolescence and about being a teenage boy doesn't matter that it's set in the 60s They they are universal messages that that will always last and the second thing is, if you are in any way serious about movie history, then it is an important film because of it, because of those young actors. And it was a, a, a the tides changing in Hollywood. Definitely. Well, as as we said, there often there were some who didn't, who weren't in that movie, um, but the big hitters were in there. Of course, of course. Well. As we start to wrap this up and head out to the Rumble, James, I always like to close these out by looking at some Coppola connections. So are there people who were in this film or worked on this film that have worked with the Coppolas elsewhere? Did you manage to find any? Um, I, <laughs> I forgot to look. Um, Fred, well, Fred Ruse has worked with um, Sophia. I mean, he's, he's one of the producers on The Virgin Suicide. So um, there you go. There's one. Perfect. And there's better ones than that, but that's one off the top of my head. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we talked about uh, trying to think of any of those actors that have, have worked with him again. Um, so I'm not have, sure if they have actually. Have they? We have Matt Dillon, obviously, who's in Rumblefish. Uh, Diane Lane oh, is in Rumblefish. Yeah, oh, Diane Lane, of course, in Cotton Club and things like that, wasn't yeah, she? Peggy yeah, Peggy Sue got married as well. Uh, no, not Peggy yeah. Sue got married. She's in Jack and she's in Paris Can Wait, which is the first time. There you go. Uh, yeah, the the film that was directed by Eleanor Coppola from a few years ago. Yeah, and yeah, and Nick Cage has been in some. <laughs> of course, of course. Well, I'll rattle off a couple of others, and then yeah, we'll we'll we'll, we'll rate this film in the way that we do over here. So, Thomas uh, Thomas C. How uh, no C. Thomas Howe is in the Amazing Spider Man, which John Schwartzman was the DOP on. Um, Emilio Estevez has an uncredited cameo. Never on a Tuesday alongside Nicolas Cage, who also has an uncredited cameo. Glenn Withrow is in Rumblefish, Cotton Club, and Peggy Sue Got Married. Uh, Michelle 
Myrink, who plays Marcy. So um, yeah, Diane Lane's friends. Yeah, yeah. So she is in Valley Girl the same year, which was Nicholas Cage's. I love Valley Girl. First, yeah, yeah, first on-screen role. So yeah, that's a that's a great little kind of. Uh, I'd see. I didn't mention Rumblefish because I thought that was just we just knew yeah, 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 that because yeah, yeah, they're yeah, almost yeah, know, filmed at the same time or back to back. But yeah, of course, several of them did go on to feature in Rumblefish. And then uh, Tom Waits, who, uh, two, oh, of course, yeah. yeah, two years before had uh, composed the music for One from the Heart, then cameoed in Rumblefish, The Cotton Club, plays Renfield in Bram Stoker's Dracula. And, He's great in that. He's great in Dracula. And then narrated Twixt, which I think uh, is the last Francis Ford Coppola film at this point, right? Oh, <laughs> uh, okay, right, yeah. They're, they're, well, they're old mates, aren't they, Tom yeah. Waits? Yeah, he's he's sort of his. Uh, his little um, lucky charm in his movies. Exactly. Yeah, it, f- it feels like he's now like Martin McDonough's like stolen him almost to be like a lucky <laughs> yeah. charm. He kind of cro- he crops up. I think. Yeah, Tom Waits fascinates me. The fact that uh, Licorice Pizza what comes out in January and Tom Waits mm. is in that. I can't wait. I, is somebody, is somebody. I'm not, I'm not massively au fait on his music, but I love to see him whenever yeah. he crops up on screen. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So, yeah, as we like to score these films, obviously the Coplas are synonymous with wine at this point. Every, every, everyone's got a wine. Sophia's got a wine. Gia's got a wine. Roman does not have a wine. Uh, but we're, Oh, we're... I've met Roman. There's another ah, one I've remembered. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, um, he was doing a talk in London about uh, his music videos because, I mean, now we know him as, as a Wes Anderson collaborator, but... He was making short films and music videos. This was probably in the noughties. And yeah, I did a little chat with him. He's lovely. Yeah. Um, I remember showing at an audience and he did a video for, there was a song in the 90s called Tax Loss by Manson, which is a great song. And the, the video is, I think he shot it at one of the stations in London, like Liverpool Street or somewhere. And basically just threw, they just threw loads of fake notes, pound, uh, you know, 10 pound notes everywhere and just filmed the chaos. <laughs> I, I, I always heard that was and real. That, I always heard that was real because they were like, what's the budget for the video? Let's get Oh, they were real money. notes. Yeah. Like, like, right. They, okay. They, oh, well, there you go. Yeah. You remember it better than me. But I just remember talking about this, this uh, music video with him uh, when he came over to, to do this little sort of uh, Q&A. So yeah, he was lovely, and he he had great stories about being on the set of stuff. Going back to family, mm-hmm. uh, the family were always on sets yeah. with Francis, well, and he, you know he was a kid growing up in you know the Philippines while he was whilst his dad was shooting um, Apocalypse Now. So he had all these great stories of just. Uh, I think that's why Sophia Coppola makes so many movies about kids who are bored because she was bored so often on, <laughs> on her dad's movie sets. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There is no. There is no somewhere without that, without her, without her kind of growing <laughs> up being carted, carted about to yeah. Italy to weird, uh, weird award ceremonies and stuff like that. And yeah, it, yeah. It feels like um, something we should definitely mention uh, as this chat is wrapping up is uh, an executive, or, or like an associate producer on this, is Gina Carlo Coppola, who I, at this time was kind of being geared up by Francis to almost take on the. The, the mantle of the family right to become a director who sadly tragically lost his life in a, a boating accident mm. i think yeah like six years later or something but yeah it just shows you like do you know what I mean the, the family is very much embedded in the copla family and I'm, 
I'm a champion for it. <laughs> yeah, no, why not? You know, and and it's not just going to um, to the, the the younger members of the family either, is it? Because Carmine was involved as well. So um, I know I've, I've, as I said at the beginning, it's it's easy to shout out nepotism, but also put yourself in their shoes. Wouldn't we all do the same thing? Yeah. I don't think I'd want my dad's composing the music for Phil My Maid, to be honest. But <laughs> <laughs> if my dad was you know a great musician then maybe i would <laughs> amazing well yeah uh as i said we score these films by asking what is the perfect wine pairing for this film james what would you what would, what would you sip down as you watch the outsiders <laughs> oh god i know nothing about wine i don't even drink um what would i sit down well it's quite it is quite a, a strong rich punchy film isn't it mm-hmm. we talked about how it's um, has this magic about it, has this fairy tale quality about it. So I don't think you'd want to go for something subtle. I think you'd want to go for something that has a bit of oomph, because the film certainly does. Um, so I'd go for some, I'd go for a strong, fruity, full-bodied red. But that's perfect. I've I've used this one, I've used this one on the podcast before, but I think this is a this this is a red wine and coke film which uh very much is like a kind of i know in south africa it's a it's a, it's a kind of a way to for teenagers to drink red wine kind of still enjoy right it. okay so it's very much it's it's got that it's got that yeah. strong punchy feeling of of a red wine but then has has the sweetness of a coca-cola which i think this this yeah film has or a soda stage. pop yeah hey there we go there we go we've uh i've I didn't even think of that, James. That's that's that's, that's why that's why I got you on the podcast. Uh, so, <laughs> how how much are we paying for that wine? AKA, is this film good or bad? Is it bottom shelf, middle shelf, or top shelf? Oh, it's top shelf. Yeah, it's absolutely top shelf. We're paying the big bucks um, for this one. Yeah, maybe you're not paying as much as you would for an Apocalypse Now or a Godfather wine, but I mean that's going to be collectors only. But um, you're paying a good whack for this, yeah, totally. Definitely, there's not dust on the bottle yet, but it's still, it's still, it's still gonna, it's still turning yeah. over the page on a menu in a restaurant. It's still, it's, it's, you are, yeah, yeah. You're not just going for the house red. You're actually choosing something with perfect. some distinction. Perfect. You, you taste in before you buy. I love, I love it. Um, so now on to some impossible questions. Uh, the first of which is, which Copeland member would you keep? But in doing so. You get rid of the filmographies of the entire rest of the family. Oh my god! <laughs> I, I I would keep Sophia. Perfect. Um, it's 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 it. You know, I in terms of my career, she is she sort of started just as I was starting it in the film journalism. So uh, she's sort of been there, and her movies have been there for me throughout that. Uh, I've met her a few times because of that, um, and I love her films. It's not mm-hmm. it's not just that I actually genuinely love her films. So um, she's more my Coppola than Francis is. Well, on a on a loophole, you get to keep the outsiders because Sophia Coppola plays the young bucktooth girl who approaches Dallas Ponyboy and Johnny when they're at the Dairy Queen asking for a I think a nickel oh, yeah. so she could buy an ice cream. So. You've definitely got to have your cake and eat it with this one, James. I love it. Perfect. (laughs) So based on this film alone, James, are the Coppola's the greatest film family of all time? 
Uh, I would say so. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so they're, 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 I mean, obviously there are acting film families. Um, the Houstons, for example, uh, there's a lot of them and there's a lot of them who are amazing. Um, but filmmaking families is slightly different. And filmmaking at this level, um, obviously there are families who have all worked in the film industry, but we might not really know who they are yes. because as brilliant as they are, they might be, you know, behind the scenes in some way, gaffers or whatever, um, working in the lighting department, you know, and we just don't know who they are. Now, not to do them down, but the Coppolas, I mean, they are front and centre. Well, yeah, um, they've kind of spread across the board, right? So they're in front of the camera, they're behind the camera, they're kind of... Uh, and they're, they're, they're marquee names, they're big names. Yes. You know, you would know who Francis Paul Coppola is, you would know who Nicholas Cage is, you would know who Sophia Coppola is. So, um, I c yeah, off the top of my head, I can't think of anybody, can't think of anybody else with, with, with just so many offshoots mm -hmm. and where the names <laughs> are, are well-known. Jason Schwartzman is well-known. He's it's quite a... a, a can't remember exactly what the connection is with Jason Schwartzman. What the, is he a nephew of Francis, or is he a yeah, so step he, nephew, or something? He's he he he's a he's a bona fide nephew. His mum is Talia. Oh, okay. So oh yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Adrian so, herself. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. You know, even Talia Shire as someone who has made an iconic character in movie history in the Rocky films. So there are so many of them who have done at least one thing that pretty much everyone knows. Yep. That's an amazing achievement. Definitely, definitely. Well, um, we always like to round these conversations off by asking, what does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation? <laughs> I remember at the Oscars that year, one of the inane reporters on the red carpet from America Asked Scarlett Johansson that, um, and uh, he he said, "Scarlett, Scarlett, before you go in, just tell me what does Bill Murray whisper in your ear? Just whisper it in my ear now." And the problem was is that he obviously had a lapel mic, so when she whispered in his ear, it we could kind of hear what she was saying. Um, and what she actually said was because she couldn't really think of anything, she just said. I'm whispering in your ear. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and of course this comes out and then, but the, the reporter didn't realize this. So he then acts as if she said something amazing. He's like, Oh my God, I can't believe he said that. That's incredible Scarlett. And I'm sat there thinking, no, we heard because your mic was near what her whispering. So we, we actually heard it's, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, that's just a, be a memory of that moment. Um, what do I think he says? Uh, I, this, this sounds like a cop-out, but I genuinely believe this. I don't want to know. Mm -hmm. Yep. I love films where I don't, I genuinely don't know the answer. The end of Inception is one people always ask me about, you know, and it's like, I don't know the answer uh, and I don't yeah, really want yeah. to, and I don't think we're even meant to know the answer. Um, and I would include that in this. So my answer to you is, I don't know, but more importantly, I don't want to know what he said. Perfect, perfect. That's uh, that I uh, as much as I, as much as I've been enjoying them. At least it's not another. Um, I've got a good lawyer. If you ever need to sue Disney. <laughs> 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 um, 
Amazing, James. Well, where can people keep up to date with everything you're doing, whether it's uh, obviously yeah on the radio, yeah, I mean, books or whatever? Yeah, social media. It's James King Movies on Instagram and, and Twitter, so you can come and say hi there. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming and making some Coppola connections with me. A pleasure. Great to see you again. A massive thank you to James King and a massive thank you to you guys for listening. If you've seen The Outsiders, if you haven't, if you enjoy it, which which version do you prefer? Are you a purist? Do you like the original theatrical release? Or are you more of a the complete novel fan? Or are you one of those people, it's not as good as the book? Well, if you want to let me know either way, whichever way you float, uh, head on over to Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd. Um, I'm on there all at Caged in Pod, or you can always drop me an email, which is cagedinpod at gmail.com. Um, as for next week on the podcast, I'm actually keeping it a little secret. I've got an interview planned, haven't recorded it yet. So one, I want to kind of keep my cards close to my chest and I also want to leave it as a bit of a surprise. Sometimes it's nice to kind of wake up on a Tuesday if you're if you're a religious uh, listener on a Tuesday and go, hey, Petra speaks to this person. You may not know this person's name, but you're going to want to hear what they have to say, especially if you're a big fan of this film. Um, a massive thank you as well for this one. Uh, to the, to the kind people at Studio Canal who sent me a screener of this new restoration of the film, which uh, they really didn't have to do because, uh, well, I requested it, but like I, I had pre-ordered that old big old box set anyway. And uh, yeah, as I kind of touched on in this episode, the, the, this film really means a lot to me. I'm kind of... It really does, I think, help with that uh, finding yourself and feeling okay with the kind of the, the feelings of feeling different feeling like an outsider and um, that's something I've, I've very much had to cope with a lot of my life even even when I feel like I'm fitting in I don't feel like I'm fitting in if, if that makes sense even when I'm kind of in the in crowd I feel like I'm the one on the outside of the in crowd or not that I've ever really been an in crowd kind of guy but that is neither here nor there I think you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, If you want to help out this podcast, you want to throw some money in the bucket, you can do. You can head on over to coffee.com. So that is ko-fi.com forward slash caged in pod. We can just buy me a little uh, digital cup of coffee, three pound. I think you can choose really how much you want to give me, whether you want to do a monthly thing. And yeah, that really helps me buy dvds or kind of just keep the lights on with the hosting fees and all stuff like that or if you'd like to head on over to patreon.com forward slash caged in pod for the little little low price of two pound fifty a month you get access to the exclusive new series i have going over there which is a monthly episode of a show i like to call movie brat bros which will be kicking off next thursday with the first episode of the first season entitled de palmarama 
I'll be looking at all the films directed by Brian De Palma, kicking off with Phantom of the Paradise with uh, longtime podcast friends and real-life friends, Daryl and Jeanette Barr. It is one you definitely won't want to miss. And uh, it's going to be a really fun project. I've got some amazing people lined up, uh, some names you have seen on this podcast, some names you haven't, and uh, hopefully make some new friends along the way to, to talk about De Palma because he's, he's a very fascinating director. I'm currently on a kind of deep-dive binge uh, through his films and I'm very much enjoying myself so I hope you will join me and enjoy my kind of trek through the world of Brian De Palma obviously if you don't want to give me your money that is absolutely cool you can also support the podcast by rating reviewing and subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now and it hardly takes a moment of your time you can literally do it in one minute a little five star little hey podcast is great petros keep doing what you're doing whatever you want to write uh, just keep it five stars is uh, that's the good stuff that's that's the sweet sweet nectar that uh, i live off of so please please validate me cool like thing you can do is always recommend to family friends enemies people you love people you hate and anyone in between let them know about what we're doing over here so as always i have been petros pat Silvers, your guide through the crazy world of the coppola family tree so remember to keep it caged in and i'll catch you next time this podcast is presented by the breadcrumbs collective home of the pod charles cinecast caged in coppola connections a drip town limery main franchised and many more to come our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.